Welcome to the Mount Olive Baptist Church podcast. I'm Pastor Carl Stokes. We appreciate you being here today with us. Our desire is to preach the Word of God effectively and clearly so that you can understand God's desire for you in your life. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at uh, that passage of Scripture there. And uh, let's join together for prayer. Dear Gracious Father, Lord, we thank You for uh, the privilege of being in Your house and the opportunity to worship You and to exalt You. And Father, Lord, we pray that that You would help us to hear Your Word, that You would allow us to hear the Spirit's call upon our life. Lord, we pray that You would allow us uh, to follow in Your footsteps. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the things I enjoy is uh, seeing unusual things at, in the theater and in, uh, in movies and things. And one of the things that was uh, popular a few years back and it's gotten some resurgence with certain movies is uh, seeing movies in three dimensions. Now, uh, three-dimensional movies uh, is what makes it different from two-dimensional movies is, is that we tend to see length and, and, and height uh, that's a 2D image that we usually see, but uh, three-dimensional movies tend to uh, add depth. And a lot of times in those particular movies, uh, they'll do things in the movie to, to kind of highlight it. Like they'll throw something directly at towards the camera, towards the viewer, or they'll stick a finger or a pole or something like that. And it, it'll seem as though it's extending all the way out into the audience and, and nearly hit you in the face and that kind of thing and and uh, those uh, kind of movies have kind of gimmicky things to show you the depth but uh, then there'll be a movie that'll come around that uh, will will seem to be perfectly tailor-made for three-dimensional movies. Uh, for instance, a movie about uh, the cosmos and outer space or about uh, the Grand Canyon or some other place that is just so grand and grandiose in it that it, it seems to immerse you into the experience. And a lot of times it can add to the movie and sometimes it can take away from the experience of the movie. <clears throat> A lot of times, uh, we're going to, uh, to start, of course, looking uh, with this week with, at Christmas and, and beginning to focus our, our hearts and minds on the, the events surrounding Christmas. And so often people tend to turn their attention off whenever you start talking about Christmas because we're so familiar with Christmas. At least we think we are. So often we remember uh, two aspects uh, of Christmas, uh, when and what of Christmas. When, uh, the first thing that we think about when we talk about Christmas is when Christmas is. We always focus around the birth of Jesus and, and we think about uh, what happened there and, and those kind of things. But that's only two dimensions of Christmas. And I want us to to, to focus uh, at least this morning on a third dimension of Christmas to get a, a better immersion into Christmas, and that is the why of Christmas. 
And that's why we are looking at the book of Genesis and looking at the third chapter here in Genesis. And, and we want to we focus on the why of Christmas to help us to understand the when and the what of Christmas. That way, if we understand the why of Christmas, why uh, Christmas is important, why is Christmas so crucial, why is, is the birth of Jesus Christ something that we not only need to celebrate, but something that we need to focus on and, and, and uh, put a, a proper perspective into our life so we can get a greater understanding of why Christmas was so important. You know, um, <coughs> throughout the year, we tend to focus a lot on the cross and focus on Jesus' death on the cross and and, and Easter, but uh, and a lot of times you might even wonder: Would it be possible to have our Christian faith if Jesus simply uh, appeared and and then died on the cross? Um, in fact, uh, as part of the the temptation. Uh, that Satan posed before Jesus uh, as he was starting his ministry was, is, hey, just reveal yourself to everybody. Just throw yourself off of the top of the temple and before your feet will touch the ground, God will send angels to, to bear you up. And, and that was a temptation of skipping all of the hard part of, of being the, uh, the, the sacrifice that we needed uh, that Jesus gave on the cross. And that was is going through all the hard part of revealing Himself without using theatrics, without using uh, uh, trickery, without using uh, those kind of things that, uh, that, uh, that Satan was proposing of feeding a lot of people with, uh, and taking care of his own needs or, or jumping off of a, a cliff or, or whatever. Uh, it was uh, Satan wanted Jesus to skip all the hard part. And uh, really the, the most essential part of Jesus being our Savior was all the part that, that came before the cross as much as the part of the cross itself. Jesus uh, uh, gave Himself not just simply to come and die on a cross, but to come and to live a life that he might understand and know what our experience is. So let's look at the why today of, of Christmas, the why. And we're going to look at, at chapter 3 of Genesis. And it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord um, had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And women, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, 
and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I am... Uh, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? And hast thou eaten of the tree wherein I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, as I said, this is a passage of Scripture that for a lot of us, we're familiar with this passage of Scripture. It comes right after the creation uh, narrative, and it's something that we're aware of. But I want you to see some things here that are interesting, some things that uh, you might not normally pick up on, and some things that are a little nuanced here. It starts off at the very beginning when it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Uh, this, this word subtle, this word uh, describing the, the serpent, it doesn't say outright that this is Satan himself, but we get an understanding of uh, that this is someone, something that's different from the rest of all of creation. Here's, here's a uh, creation of God, a, a serpent. You realize that God created the serpent, that God created the one who would go and, and, and tempt Adam and Eve, that would go and, and seek to beguile that word beguile is a, a, an interesting word too. We'll get that uh, to that in just a minute. The serpent was more subtle than any beast. He was. Uh, it, it indicates that there was something more there. That there was something there that's that's not in all the other creation. He goes to Eve. And he says to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And what he's, what he's really saying here is, is that um, one, one, uh, one uh, uh, way of translating this is not, you can eat of any tree in the garden. It, that's a kind of a... That's very... Uh, uh, backwards in terms of English grammar and the English way of looking at things, but um, what he's saying is is a uh, is basically a negation of the very thing that God said. God said you can eat any, of any tree of the garden except the one, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But but uh, the serpent here says 
uh, and it, it's translated in the King James and in other English translations as kind of the best way that can really sum up what this is 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 literally the literal translation of it is is he's saying didn't God say that you could eat of any tree of the garden in in essence saying um, God told you you could do something why aren't you eating of this tree. Why is it that you're not eating of that particular tree? Did, have you ever wondered why uh, the serpent went to Eve instead of Adam? It wasn't because she was weaker. It's not because she um, was uh, dimmer than Adam or, or that she wasn't on her game as much as Adam. I, I think it was because, and I believe, that it was because... Adam had God come to him and say, you, cannot, uh, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for that one. But who told Eve? It wasn't God. It was Adam that told God, uh, told Eve that you can eat of any tree except the one in the middle. He's, he's, uh, he went and uh, went to the one that was one step away from the actual command. God said to Adam, don't do it. So he knew he couldn't go and trick Adam. So he went to Eve because he knew that Eve didn't, uh, didn't hear directly from, uh, from God. And, and so we see that the serpent here, he comes to, uh, to Eve and he kind of uh, is playing on the doubts of, of Eve, playing on the, the uh, trying to get her to question exactly what uh, uh, God had really said. He says, Is it, are you sure that God really didn't say you can eat of any tree? Why aren't you eating of this particular tree? Why isn't the, the fruit of that tree uh, off limits? And Eve uh, tells the serpent... We can eat of any tree, uh, eat of, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. She kind of, uh, now, God didn't say that they couldn't touch it, but she's, which illustrates her lack of comprehension of what God's real command is. It's not that God said you couldn't touch it. He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and, and her fear of doing what God told her not to do has added to this and embellished on it. And it illustrates the fact that she doesn't know truly what God has said. And so she says, God says, you can't eat of that tree and you can't touch it either, lest you're going to die. And the serpent does again what he did in the first verse, and that is, you're not going to really die, are you? I mean, are you really not going to die if you touch it, if you eat it, if you, if you, if you are, are around it all? You know, uh, let me just point out something here that you might not have noticed before. Nothing that the serpent says is false. Nothing. Now, you might listen to what I'm saying. Everything that the serpent says is not false in a way. God said, you, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But... 
Look at what happens. When they touched it to take the fruit off of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when, when, she, when Eve touched it to eat of it, did she die immediately? No. When they ate it, did they die immediately? Well, they didn't die, like fall down like uh, 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 immediately and die, but instead they were uh, cast out of the garden, right? And uh, we don't know what, how old Adam was at the time in which they ate of the tree of the knowledge of evil, but we know that he lived for 930 years. So he didn't die immediately. When they ate of the tree, they knew the knowledge of uh, between good and evil like God understood. So yes, they did gain an understanding of right and wrong like God had. So they were like God. Well, they were already like God, uh, but they weren't a God. And, and that was what the temptation was, is to be a God. So everything that Satan said, uh, everything the serpent said about eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was was not patently wrong. It was just slightly wrong. And that's what Satan does to us whenever we're going through our daily life and when we're tempted. It's not that, uh, that Satan, when he tempts you and me, uh, in our daily life, it's not always that he tells you, uh, "Look, the sky's purple." He doesn't say things that are out now wrong. It's just subtly wrong to the point where it gets us moving away from God, and that's exactly what all of this was designed to do: was to move Adam and Eve away from God. And and we'll see that more clearly here in just a moment when we talk about the punishment of uh, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that's exactly what. What Satan seeks to do is is to is to not is to tell us enough truth that it's believable, but it's not completely true. It's not a hundred percent true. And say uh, and the serpent here says to Eve, he says to the woman, he says, uh, "Surely you're not going to die if you eat this. You're not going to actually tell me that as soon as you take a bite of it, you're going to fall down dead in that moment." And they didn't do that, but death began at that moment in their life. They uh, would eventually die and return to dust because they had uh, begun to die in that moment. But Satan uh, in our life tends to put enough doubt in us that we begin to doubt the very Word of God and very uh, doubt the very things that God has told us. And so... That's what the serpent is doing here, is that he's placing doubt in our lives. He's putting doubt in the life of of the woman to the point where she begins to to have doubt about what God says. He says, uh, For God hath known that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Well, yes, they did know good and evil, but they not necessarily be a god. Uh, and that was the subtlety there. Uh, yes, God knows the difference between good and evil, and uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, again, another half-truth that, that the serpent is saying. And when the woman saw that... Uh, look at this verse here. I want you to see something you probably never seen before. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant 
to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, what I want you to see is how this uh, verse is constructed at the beginning, not at the end. At the beginning it says, uh, when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit. That's, uh, that is reminiscent of a passage of Scripture that happened just briefly before this passage of Scripture as God is creating all of, uh, of creation. What does it say that God did when He created for instance, when He created uh, the sun, moon, and stars. It says that He, uh, after He created, He stopped and gazed upon it, and He saw that it was good. And, uh, and He declares it to be good. And so what we see here is, is that uh, when uh, we are tempted by Satan and when we are yielding to sin in our life, yielding to temptation, we tend to want to take the place of God in the determination of things. She is in essence uh, taking the place of God and saying, when it says she sees that it's good for fruit, well, uh, she's determining it's good, just like God determined that His creation of all the creepy things that creep upon the earth, that they were good. And when God created the, uh, the things that flew through the air and saw that they were good, He saw they were good and, and He declared that they were good. Or when God created all the things that swim under the oceans and, and swim in the waters and He looks upon that creation and He determines that they are good, God is declaring those things to be good because He's Creator. He is the one who created those things. He's the one who has the right and authority to declare that those things are good. And yet, when we are in the midst of our sin, when we come into a place of yielding to temptation, we tend to seek to take the place of God. And we look at our sinful nature, our sinful th- behavior, and we say to ourselves, oh no, that's not sin anymore. That's good. That's good for me to do. They just finished saying that God told her that she wasn't supposed to eat of the tree. And yet here, in one verse later, she's saying, uh, she's looking at the fruit and she's saying, hey, you know, that fruit does look good. And, and that fruit will help nourish my body. And here she is, she's in the midst of the garden and there's fruit all around her. And yet she's focused on one fruit and determining that in spite of all the fruit that's around her that's good, all the fruit that is there for her to eat, everything else, all the other options, she sees the one she's not supposed to have and she declares it to be good. And she says, I'm going to have some of that because it's good. And that's what Satan does to us when we are yielding to our temptations in our life. He causes us to focus on the one thing He's presenting and in spite of all the things that God has given us all around us that are good, He convinces us to declare the one thing God doesn't want us to do as good. And once we've convinced ourselves, we're hooked. Just like that big old bass that lives out in the pond, you're hooked and you ain't getting loose. You're hooked. And, and the woman here is hooked. 
Well, I believe the man is already hooked too. He's there with her in my book. He's, he's there right there because it says that she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, that it was desirable, uh, and it was something that, that she wanted in her life. And, and hey, doesn't, isn't that what temptation does to us as well? Calls us to see that it's desi- not only desirable, but have a yearning for it in our life, that it's going to be good for us to have, calls us to have an understanding that, uh, that, that we, uh, when we look upon it, it's something that we desire. And so she takes the fruit, she eats it, and it doesn't say she has to go and find Adam doesn't say that she had to go and hunt him down and explain why she'd eaten of the tree. doesn't say that she had to go and explain to him what the serpent said. She says she eats it and then she hands it to her, to Adam. I think he was there all along. But he was speak, uh, the serpent was speaking to, uh, to the woman because it, he, she was an easier uh, uh, mark. She was an easier... Uh, uh, one to to confirm. If you want to say, uh, if you want to say the one that was dumber, I think it was Adam. He heard directly from God that he wasn't supposed to do this. He could have sat there and 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 countermanded everything that the serpent had said, and yet he sits there and doesn't say a word. And then when she hands him the fruit, he just eats it like he it, it, it's anything else. But anyway. She eats the fruit thereof and she turns and gives it to Adam and he did eat. And the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they saw, uh, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They saw that they were naked. Why naked? Well, uh, naked here represents their innocence. Naked represents the fact that they didn't, uh, without sin in their lives, they, there was nothing that, that would cause them to see their nakedness as, as being lewd or, or anything. And that's what sin does to us as well. It takes what God has, has provided for us and has, is giving us as a gift to us and takes it and distorts it to the point where it is a, a, a something lewd in our life instead it takes it and, and and takes the blessing of God and turns it obscene it takes the the goodness of God and turns it into something ugly and and that's immediately what they see they look down they notice that they're naked and it, the innocence is wiped away they are immediately uh, realized that they are without any covering now that covering is uh, that they talk about being the fig leaves that they've put together is is important for us to understand and it's also important later to understand that God sacrifices an animal burns the uh, sacrifice on an altar takes the skins of that that animal and sews them together for clothes for them and God provides clothing for them in the place of the fig leaves now this covering that they uh, feel a necessity to have is is showing the fact that they have sin in their life and so who are they covering it from? 
each other. They, they're, they're both together. They, they, it's, it's, they're not naked in front of each other. Why do they need a covering? Because they're hiding from God already. The fig leaves represent a, a, a crude way in which they are trying to cover the sin in their life covering the wrong that they've done, not from themselves. They know what they've done is to cover the wrong that they've done before God. And so they are taking what God has created and trying to to cover over their sinfulness and to to keep uh, God from seeing the sin in their life. And and this is pointed out when God comes. Now uh, God comes to uh, walk in the in the garden in the cool of the evening, and we have to take from the word here that it means that God, on a regular basis, uh, came and walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the of the evening, and shared with them uh, a time and intimacy. And we'll see quickly that this is the result of sin. The result of sin is that we no longer have an intimacy with God and we no longer have a closeness with God. Uh, the result of, of sin is, is that it causes a distance between us. Look, uh, what it says here is that God co- comes walking in the cool of the evening in the midst of the garden and He, and he calls out to Adam and Eve. Now, do you think God doesn't know where Adam and Eve is? No, this is not a call in terms of, hey, uh, uh, you know, Adam, Eve, are you lost? Uh, uh, where are you? Where, where? God knows exactly where they are. This is a God, God giving them. And, uh, this is God not coming as a creator God, but coming as a redeemer God. Because this call to them is not a call to find where they are. It is a call for redemption, a call for them to come back to Him. It's not so that He'll find them, it's so they'll find God. It's an opportunity for them to find their way back to God, to saying to them, hey, I'm coming, won't you come to me, in essence, is what they're saying. It's the same thing as, as if you are uh, have a little child that is hiding, and you can see their little head bobbing uh, behind the cabinet there, laughing and giggling, and you say to themselves, where are you? Now, you know where they are, because you can see them right there la- giggling, because they think that they've hid from you, because if they can't see you, they think that you can't see them. And uh, in reality, you know where they are. It is a call when you say, where are you? It is a call for them to come tearing around that cabinet and to fall into your arms because you found them. You know where they are, but it's a chance to play the game of allowing them to come to you. And that's what God is doing here. Like a parent who is saying to them, come back to me. Where are you? Here I am. Won't you come to me? And that's what God is seeking to do. And God does it several times. This is the first time God says, Where are you? And uh, they come and they reveal themselves and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden and they hide amongst the trees of the garden. These trees that God had created as a provision, now they're using as a way of hiding from God. And God calls out to them and they're using the very thing that uh, God's provision to them, the very thing that they should have been consuming rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They should have been uh, eating from these other trees. They're using to hide from God. 
And he says to them, uh, God said to them in verse 9, Where are you? And Adam says, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. All the time that Adam and Eve had been walking with God in the garden, they never knew fear of God until they knew they're wrong before God. They feared God not because God was coming and they said, Oh, I'm naked. I don't need God to see me. It's uh, they feared God because they knew that He would know they had sinned. They knew that God would see their sin in their life. And they tried half-heartedly to hide their sin from God. He says, I knew I was naked and I hid myself And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? Now, this is number two opportunity that God has given them to proclaim that they have sinned. And yet, what do they do? Instead of saying, Yes, yes, Lord, I ate, I did wrong, I'm sorry uh, for doing wrong. Instead, what do they do? Well, Adam says, Well, it's it's that woman you gave me. That woman you gave me, she's the reason why I ate. So in essence, instead of saying, yes, I did that, he's saying, God, you know it's your fault. God, it's your fault because if you'd never given me that woman, I never would have eaten of that tree because she gave it to me. And God looks to, uh, to Eve and, and he, he gives Eve a chance to say what she does, has done. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is it that thou hast done? And she does the exact same thing. She says, Well, it's that serpent that you put in the garden. If you never created that serpent, I never would have sinned because you put that serpent here, I sinned. Oh, really? You realize if it hadn't been the serpent, it would have been the giraffe, it might have been the hippopotamus, it might have been the lion, it might have been the monkey, whatever. But instead of taking... And that's what we do when we sin, isn't it? When we sin, instead of taking the responsibility, instead of coming to God and saying, I have done this. And, and, and remember, this is the first step towards forgiveness is when we finally come to the point where we take responsibility for what we've done. You can't ask for forgiveness of a sin if you don't first acknowledge the fact that you've done the sin. You can't say, I'm sorry for a sin uh, uh, if, you didn't, if you don't first uh, come to the, to the point where you're willing to admit that you have sinned. It's like if uh, uh, one of the things that I used to hate a lot of about the holiday season uh, this time of the year was going to my grandmother's house and being around all those uh, ancient irreplaceable bric-a-brac things that were all over the house where if you step on the wrong board in the, on the, in the floor that you were going to make everything shake and it could fall. And so I was always afraid that I was going to hit something, bump something, uh, run into something, uh, touch something that I wasn't supposed to touch and it would break immediately. I was fearful of doing that uh, because of uh, all the things that, that were in the house and the things that that I could po- uh, potentially break. Now, if you're in a room and something just happens to fall, who's the blame going to be? It's going to be you because you're in the room, right? 
you can, uh, and, and nine times out of ten, my grandmama would probably look at me and say, oh, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. You know, we bought that for a quarter uh, 40 years ago and, and on the side of the road or something like that. It, uh, it, it never had the significance I thought it had, but because it was my grandmama's, I was always, always afraid that she would be just reduced to tears because I broke her favorite little angel or something like that. And But you can't get forgiveness until you first admit, I did that. Or I was, uh, you know, if you keep saying, I was sitting here and all of a sudden it just jumped up off of the, uh, off of the uh, bricker uh, brack over there and just jumped to its death. It committed suicide while I was sitting in here and I, I was watching TV, did nothing. No, you'll never get uh, uh, any forgiveness until you admit what you did. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was just walking through and I bumped something and, and it, oh, clearly it was an accident. But if you sit there and, and make excuses, guess what? In your grandmama's or your mama's mind, it's going, oh, what in the world was he doing? He's in here playing football while he should have been sitting quietly. And, and, and that's why it broke. Uh, we can never gain forgiveness from God until we're first willing to admit that we've done wrong. God gave uh, Adam and Eve a second chance here to admit that they did wrong, but they wanted to place the blame on someone else, something else. And, it, and the woman blames the serpent. God doesn't give the serpent a chance to, to make an excuse. He begins to curse, and He does it beginning with the serpent and going up. Now, instead, uh, God started at man and said, Why have you done this? And, and man said, Look at the woman. She did this. And the woman says, Look at the serpent. Now God is saying, okay, serpent, you're going to get punishment. And from now on, you're going to eat of the dust of the ground. And it, the serpents, of course, don't literally eat dust, but it means uh, it relates to uh, being cursed and wallowing in the ground, uh, being the lowliest of the lows all the days of your life. And, and I'm going to put, uh, verse 15 says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And this is the crux of what's happening here. He says, this is the why. And this is the why of, of Christmas. He says, because of our sin, God says, I have put enmity between you. And He begins with the serpent and He goes back up. Our, the privilege of, of being created by God and living in the garden was... Not just to eat of the garden, but that God would provide all. That God would provide life. And sin is putting enmity between us and God. And it began in the curse of God between uh, man and the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between you and the, my uh, man because you've put enmity between me and my creation. 
And sin creates enmity, creates enemies, creates uh, a hostility between. Every time we find snakes, our, our first inclination is to run like uh, a scared little girl. And then we find a hoe or a shovel or a shotgun or something and blow the head off, right? Because we want to kill that sucker. We don't care if it's, it's the best thing in the world for uh, around our house, for the environment or anything. If it's not poisonous or anything, we want to kill it because we don't want to take any chances. That's enmity. And the serpent always has enmity with us because every time you're around snakes and things, they tend to to be protective and want to strike out. And uh, so enmity between uh, us and the creation. And that's really what sin did. It created enmity. It created enemies between God's creation, uh, between man and the creation. That's why man couldn't stay in the garden. God said, you've got to go. You've got to get out of the garden. I'm creating uh, an enmity. And, and when he turns to Adam and says, you're going to have to work all the days of your life, that meant that all of creation is not going to help you anymore. You're going to have to coax it into helping you. You're going to have to plow. You're going to have to plant. You're going to have to pull weeds. <clears throat> what once was at unity with you because of being part of my creation and providing for you, now you're going to struggle with that creation. He turns to the woman and he says, uh, you're going to have enmity as well between you and your husband, and you're going to have difficulty and struggle in doing the thing that is my greatest blessing to you, which is to allow you to be uh, the vessel of creation, of creating new life. All the things that God had created to be a blessing of all of the plants and all the things that provide food and nourishment and uh, provision and all the, the blessing of, of giving childbirth now is, a, is at enmity with creation because of sin. And, and because of sin, we all of creation has enmity with God. And that's what it did with Adam and Eve. Uh, the sin, the why, is, is that our sin causes us to have distance from God, a separation between us in God causes us to have uh, a lack of of unity with God, a lack of relationship with God. No longer is, is man going to be able to walk in the cool of the evening and have fellowship with God. Why? Because of their sin. And we're going to see uh, it, it throughout this series about uh, Christmas that it's all leading to God's answer. But I want you to see one last thing, and this is the first uh, prophetic prophecy to occur in Scripture, and that is, is that uh, when he talks about uh, uh, he says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And that's a prophetic, uh, uh, a messianic prophecy relating to uh, right back to uh, the cross. And, and that's really what the uh, uh, Christmas is all about, is about eliminating that distance between us and God, eliminating that enmity between God and man, eliminating that enmity in God's creation, that, that hostility between creation and God and creation in itself. And God's desire is, is that we would understand that His 
desire is to have us together with Him as it was in the garden. And all of Christmas points to God's answer to sin and bringing us back into a right relationship with Him. So whenever you think of Christmas, think of the, the, uh, the when and the where and the why. The why is because of you and me. The why is because we have sin in our life. The why is because God's desire is to bring us back into a right relationship with Him. And I hope and pray that through the Christmas season that you'll see the reason for the season is is not just simply that Jesus would come, but that Jesus would come and remove the barrier between mankind and God, the, the sin of mankind so that man and God can finally come back together again in unity and in love. Let's pray.